going forward, we are in Leviticus chapter 16. And as we come to chapter 16 of Leviticus, we come to Yom Kippur and the Day of Atonement. There are those three primary feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and Feast of Tabernacle. And Feast of Tabernacle is in the autumn, and Yom Kippur is right in the front end of that. So Yom Kippur is still a celebrated feast for the Jewish people, and it is a holiday, and it is Day of Atonement. It's the day where God, from his word right here in Leviticus, taught his people that he makes at one if you will, which holy God, sinful man, through blood, through sacrifice, and how he's approached. So when we come to this part of the law in the book of Leviticus, the law of God, remember it's the moral law, the Ten Commandments, it's the civil law, which we studied with other parts of this book already, for governing people, health, health stuff, things like that, kidnapping, criminal punishment for crimes, all that. And then there's the religious law, which is how God is approached, how he's worshipped, what's acceptable worship, what's not acceptable. We already seen Nadab and Abihu offer up profane fire and be struck down by God. That would be unacceptable worship. And tonight we're looking at the religious element of God's law with Yom Kippur and what is acceptable worship and prescribed worship by the Lord that would happen one day a year. So as we pick it up in chapter 16, we're going to read the first 10 verses. Now we read the whole chapter on Tuesday night. We're going to read the first 10 verses and then I'm just going to do a little bit of a survey beyond that. And then we're going to look at this and how this is a shadow of things to come in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us and what it means to us on this day. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the Ark of the Covenant lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. He shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with the linen sash, with the linen turban. He shall be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore he shall wash his body in water and put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering, one ram as a burnt offering. And Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness. So this is the introduction to Yom Kippur and the events that would happen or the necessary items for Yom Kippur. And as we would read through the chapter, we would see that Aaron would go in, be the first one to go into the tabernacle. Remember, the tabernacle is a central place of worship. It's about 50 yards long, but not as, so it's half a football field, but not as wide. It's rectangular. And two-thirds of it was the holy place with the showbread and the altar of incense and the lampstand. And the priest would go in there and do various things, change the showbread, stuff like that. But behind the veil was the holiest of holies, one-third of the building, essentially. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant was, the golden Ark of the Covenant with the Ten Commandments, the rod, Aaron's rod that budded, the jar of manna were in there. And that you could, only one person once a year could go in there, and that was Aaron, the high priest. And then the subsequent descendants of Aaron who were high priests. So during the wilderness wandering, Aaron, 
and then Eleazar eventually succeeded him, and then Phineas, the grandson, succeeded him, and various other people. And this high priesthood went on for 1,500 years. So the time when Jesus was rejected as the Messiah, he was rejected by Ananias and Caiaphas, who were two high priests at the same time because the position became like it often does with religion, political as opposed to spiritual or in contrast to spiritual. But for 1,500 years from the beginning here at Mount Sinai in the wilderness until the time of Christ, this was the case. And remember when Jesus died on the cross, the veil there in the holiest of holies in the temple was torn from top to bottom, God making the way through his son, Jesus Christ. Man doesn't ascend, but God makes the way by sending his son. And all that imagery that's forced in the New Testament sheds light on this text here in the Old Testament. So Aaron, once a year, so God says, just can't go in any time. Once a year, he'd go in, and he did this. And he presented first the blood of the bull for himself, seven times sprinkling, come back out. Then he'd take the goat for the nation, sprinkling for the atonement for the worship place itself, the altar, the temple, all of it. He was sanctifying everything. So first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people, and to sanctify the elements of the place of worship there at the tabernacle. Then, in the end of the process, the second scapegoat, which is described for us here, he would confess the sins of the nation upon the goat. Whatever their sins were, he would confess them over the goat, and then a random person would take the goat, a selected person, take the goat out into the Judean wilderness, which is the desert near the Dead Sea to the south, the southeast, to be scattered and never to be seen from or heard from again. And so the the scapegoat is released, and we never want to see that scapegoat again. So kind of like the two doves, one flies away. So the one dies, and the blood of the one is sprinkled on the other one, and it flies away. So when we talk about that, we're, that's what Jesus does for us. We're, he died for us. His blood's upon us, and we fly, and we're set free. But this is a little different because the scapegoat, Jesus is working in the scapegoat because he is the scapegoat that dies for the sins of the people. The Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all, it says in Isaiah 53. He's the scapegoat that's blood is shed. But the second scapegoat that the sins are confessed over and released, that really represents what Christ does for us on the cross, that our sins are removed from us and taken from us in a, in a symbolic way, but the New Testament gives us an even fuller way than described for us here. And so these are the events that would happen on Yom Kippur, and it happened once a year on one day, and we're told in verse 29 it's that it's on the seventh month, on the tenth day, you afflict your soul, and this will happen. And we're told in verse 30 that it's to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. And then again, the last verse 34 tells us, for all their sins once a year, and he, Aaron, did as the Lord commanded. And this is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Now, Jesus is our high priest, and all of this is pointing us to Jesus, who he is, what he would do, how he'd fulfill these things, and what it means for us. So often, the New Testament, as we've been seeing, even in Acts 10, when we talked about clean foods and unclean foods a couple of weeks ago, we see how the New Testament sheds light for us on the Old Testament, where there's a shadow of things to come, but we get the full understanding from the New Testament. And so it is tonight. Because to really understand this Day of Atonement, the book of Hebrews essentially is devoted to helping us understand how Jesus fulfills these things of the Old Testament, and specifically how he's superior to these things of the Old Testament, and that not only does he fulfill them, he cancels them and makes them obsolete, including Yom Kippur and the Day of Atonement. Because what Christ did on the cross fulfills completely, totally what this, what 
this action was every year for 15 centuries till he came on the cross and said it is finished. So we want to do some things. The first thing we want to do is we want to contrast Aaron and Jesus. Because Aaron is the first high priest. Now remember, Aaron already melted down the gold into a golden calf that the people worshipped that was later ground down into powder and 3,000 people were executed by the Lord for their sin with the golden calf. That's Aaron's ministry record so far. He cost 3,000 people their lives and led them in it, and he made excuses when confronted with it. But yet, he's called. Also, we saw when the priesthood was dedicated, his two sons, Nadab and Abihu, mentioned in the first verse here, were struck down by the Lord. Because God says, I'm holy, and I must be regarded as holy by those who come to me. And what they did was wrong, and it was evil. And God knew their hearts, and he struck them down. Powerful imagery and history for us to learn from. In fact, we're told in Corinthians, these things are written for our admonition. So Aaron has already had his failure. His two oldest sons were struck down by the Lord for, for abusing and misrepresenting the Lord in, on their, when the Lord's presence came at the commencement of the priesthood. And it is in that background where the Lord says to Moses, tell your brother Aaron, not just come at any time in the holy place, inside the veil, but he's going to go before the mercy seat which is on top of the Ark of the Covenant, and I'm going to meet him in the cloud. And it's going to happen once a year, and it's the way I prescribe it. So listen carefully. But tell Aaron your brother. So Aaron is this high priest. And again, no one else could just take this. The high priest had to be, by God's decree, descendants of Aaron. They're of the tribe of Levi, specifically the subtribe of the Kohathites, and from the family of Aaron. You couldn't just take this to yourself. It was something that you were born into, and it was part of God's plan for your life, and you became the high priest. And what a great responsibility it was. Now, Aaron, when he went in, he had to go in as a sinner. And before he could do anything for the people, he had to bring in the blood of the bull for himself. Now, we're told in Hebrews that the blood of bulls and goats cannot remove sin. And this is why, because it comes from this day. This bull... He had hit it. Like, when this day started, it was once a year day. Like, he's coming to work on this day, and he's going to do the one thing no one else can do on the entire planet. And he's got a bull, and he's bringing a bull. And he's bringing it for his sins and his family's sin, and essentially for the house of Levi. It's what he's doing. So as he goes, puts on the holy trousers and the holy garments and the holiness of the Lord turban, he's doing what he's called to do, but he's a sinner. He's a sinner with a sign on his forehead that says holiness of the Lord, but he's not holy. He's a sinner going in the presence of a holy God who's behind that veil, who's going to appear to him in the cloud. Talk about your sobering day at work, right? We talked about this Tuesday, like, you know, like, if you were the high priest, think how that would restrain you, that you're going to go before the Lord. You probably would speak less and listen more the closer you got to the day of Yom Kippur. You'd probably take inventory, like, you know, I just need to let that go. What those guys from the house of Merari did to me and what they did last month at the t- tabernacle, what they said, you're like, hey, you're going into the cloud where God's going to meet you. You want to let it go. There's something very sobering about this event for Aaron. But the thing, the day begins, all this, this day and its significance begins with him having to make it bring blood for his own sin. So it's a faulty high priesthood. It's an incomplete high priesthood, and it's not a priesthood that can save us. It can provide temporary cleansing, but can't save us because he is a sinner. He goes in as a sinner, and before he does anything for anyone else, he has to go in, confess his sins, and put blood on the altar 
for his sins and his family's sin, much like we are today, pastors and leaders in the church. Before John MacArthur, myself, or anyone gets in the church, we're all human, and we're trying to grow and go forward in our personal life, and by God's grace, be a better version of what we were as we're going forward with the church together. But we're doing it by grace. Aaron was under the law. So it's incomplete. And we're told in the book of Hebrews how it just, it never, you know, it never really completed the deal. So it just, we're told in Hebrews that one priest would die and another one would rise up and they do the same thing. So Aaron's out. It's like football teams have changed quarterback. Choose the new starting quarterback. Like it just, it just, it rolled over, rolled. Who's the new boss? It just rolled over, rolled over year after year after year, generation after generation. But when Jesus came and he, the book of Hebrews is dedicated to his priesthood. We've studied this many times at Worship Generation, but we know that he's a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is not from the 12 tribes of Israel, from the tribe of Levi, the Kohites, by whom Aaron the high priest comes. Jesus is from the fourth son born, Judah, the tribe of Judah, of the house of David, of the house of, you know, from the house of David. That's Jesus in that line. He has to be in that line, and that's why it's emphasized twice in the genealogies of Matthew and Luke. He's in that line. So we're told he's our priest, but he's not a priest according to Aaron, the high priest, and the Levites. Now, the base of his priesthood does come to us from Melchizedek. Now, we studied Melchizedek a year ago in Genesis, and Melchizedek appeared to Abraham. So 500 years before this, right now, with Aaron starting the priesthood, when Aaron, excuse me, when Abraham had his victory against the Chedorlaomer and the five kings, and he's coming back from Syria, and he's got victory with his army of 200, and he took out these kings, and he rescued Lot, his nephew. He comes back, and Melchizedek comes out of nowhere. We're told that Melchizedek has no beginning or no ending, no genealogy. We're told he's the prince of peace, Salem. And he breaks communion with Abraham, and Abraham gives him a tenth of the spoil. So, we're told that the one ties to another recognizes the superiority of the one they tie to. So Abraham, who's the head of the Jewish nation, all Israelites, he paid homage to Melchizedek by giving him a tithe. He gave him the tithe 500 years before Aaron came on as high priest. Now, we're told that Jesus is our high priest not according to the order of Aaron, which is sinful men year after year going in to offer up the blood of the bull first off for their sins, but he's a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Many people believe Melchizedek is a type of Jesus Christ. Well, he's certainly a type or an actually Old Testament appearance, what they call a Christophany or theophany of Christ in the Old Testament. Either way, we're told that Jesus is priesthood there's only two high priests according to the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek himself, who Abraham gave a tithe to, and Jesus. Because the psalm says, by a thousand years before Christ came, and 500 years now after Aaron, and a thousand years after Abraham, that God swears concerning his son, you're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So the father says that my son is a priest according to the priesthood of Melchizedek. And we only have one passage about Melchizedek in the book of Genesis. Okay, so he's not a priest according to the tribe of Levite, but Melchizedek, who has no beginning or end. That's what we get. So as our high priest, Jesus is not in the line of sin from the sons of Aaron. But he's from the tribe of Judah, according to the promises of the Messiah. But as a priest, he's according to the order of Melchizedek. And because of that, his priesthood's completely different. 
And this is what we read about his priesthood in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, contrasting Jesus to Aaron. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Aaron is not the Son of God. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain help and mercy and find grace in the time of need. So as we contrast, this is the first thing we're doing tonight, we're contrasting Aaron and Jesus. Our high priest is Jesus, who's the Son of God. And we confess him as our, if we confess him as Lord, he's our Lord. We can, the confession, we believe in our heart, we confess with our mouth. So he is our Lord when we give, give our life to Christ. And he's our high priest. See, he's our high priest, not Aaron. There are still Jewish people all over the world that celebrate Yom Kippur every year, Day of Atonement, affiliating with Aaron in his high priesthood to this day. But Jesus came and replaces that, makes that obsolete, null, and void with the, his priesthood as according to the order of Melchizedek. And we're told again, he can sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tested. So like Aaron, you know, Aaron, you know, Aaron have a bad day with his wife or a bad day with the kids, a bad day at work, the co-workers, whatever. He could empathize, but he'd still bring a bull for his sin. The difference with Jesus is that yet without sin. It's really important that we understand in a world that's coming against Jesus and coming against historical biblical doctrines concerning the person, the work of Jesus. Recently, I had someone from the church tell me their co-worker insisted that Jesus was a sinner. He was married to Mary Magdalene and had a child out of wedlock, whatever. I think it's the Vinci Code or something. I don't even know. I don't pay attention to lies. It's better if you focus on the truth because you always recognize a lie when you hear it if you know the truth. But the attack on the person of Jesus Christ is endless. When I first got saved in 1988, remember the movie that came out in 88? The Last Temptation of Jesus Christ. It was a blasphemous movie, if you were around to remember that. The devil's always attacking the person the work, the character, the position, and the promises of Jesus Christ, now more so than any other time. And that's why it's really important we keep bringing people back to Jesus. I had a neighbor say to me yesterday that he pictures Jesus as this really friendly, loving person. I said, yes, that's true, but you need to picture him bloodied and beaten on the cross for the wrath of God upon him, your sins and my sins. I said, he's the only way to the Father, but he'll let anyone come. He's inclusive and exclusive. That's Jesus. And here yet again is another verse that makes clear for us, Jesus being born of the Virgin Mary. And this is why it's so important. We've seen that song, I believe, in the virgin birth. Mary was a virgin. The Immaculate Conception is a historical fact. God became a man, and he was born of the virgin, and Jesus Christ never sinned. And he had the perfect sinless life. And so... He can empathize with us just like Aaron could, but Aaron's still got to bring the blood of the bull. But Jesus did not sin. And we're told in Hebrews that the things on earth are a model of things in heaven and that he has entered the holiest of holies once for all and seated at the right hand of the Father. And the blood he offered was not the blood of the bull, but his own blood. And therefore, we come boldly to the throne of grace that we obtain mercy and grace to help in time of need. Aaron could only go on the holies of holies once a year where the cloud was. We can come 
24-7, anytime, anywhere, anyhow, into the presence of the Lord based upon who Jesus Christ is when he's our Lord and Savior and our access to him. I used to tell people, I'm done with this conversation, but Jesus can listen to you all night. Big churches, you get these things that never end. It's like, you know, we're, no, we're on the clock for five minutes here. Heats up. Okay, so I'm done, but Jesus isn't. So you can go home and you can just keep this conversation going with Jesus because I don't supplant him anyways. He's always there for you. He's always there for you 24-7. Always. So it's not once a year on the 10th month, on the 9th day or whatever. It's every day, all access to the throne room of God through Jesus Christ, our great high priest. And that is why he's a superior high priest. Because we wake up with Jesus, our Lord and Savior. He's our high priest. And he's at the right hand of the Father. He ever lives and intercedes for us. And and he's there. He's there for us. And we come for grace and mercy in time of need. We don't wait a whole year. Like, what if you just flubbed, flubbed up so bad three days after Yom Kippur? You're like, man, 362 days to, 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 wait for, to wait for Aaron to come down here carrying the cow and the two goats. But Jesus entered once for all. And so we just need to keep that in mind that he's always there for us. And he can ever empathize with us in our strengths and failures like Bobby was praying about during worship. On our greatest day and our lowest day, in our best moment, our worst moment, he doesn't change. Our lives change. Our culture changes. Our planet changes. But he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And for us who name Christ as Lord and Savior, he's our great high priest, and he's always there for us. And we just need to be reminded of that at such a time as this. Because all everything's moving. Everything's being shaken. Things are being right is wrong and wrong is right. And it's upside down. It's an alternative reality, an alternative universe we're living in right now. Yet... Jesus Christ hasn't changed, and he's the same on August 15th as he was on March 15th when all this madness began, Sunday, March 15th, if you remember the 15th. That's the first day most of the churches were closed. In all this uncertainty, our high priest does not change, and he is certain. Now, we read on a second thing. So contrasting with Aaron, forget Aaron. (laughs) He's in the grave. Jesus is risen. The second thing we want to do is recognize the type of Aaron for the work of Jesus. So as we look at what Aaron would do, he comes in the holy place with the blood of the young bull as a sin offering, ram offering. So he went in the holy place with those sacrifices for himself and for the people. And he took, he took from the congregation, so he went into the holy place on their behalf. And he offered the offerings, verse 6, for the people, for himself. And he cast a lot, and all this happened with the sin offering. So he, he went in... And did this work. It was a work that involved blood, substitution, atonement. He was a mediator. Aaron was a mediator in this sense. And it was a work that involved blood, atonement, and substitution. And so again, a reminder that we are told in Hebrews that the blood of Jesus is the atonement for us and the sufficient substitution. So in Hebrews, I want to read this text, chapter 9. In chapter 9, verse 11, we read this. But Christ came as the high priest of the good things to come, contrasting again with Aaron. With the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, But with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. 
So he entered the most holy place in heaven, because the thing on earth is just a model of things in heaven, once for all having obtained eternal redemption. So again, what Jesus did on the cross was his blood, the blood of God, born of the Virgin Mary, perfect sinless blood. No one's had that blood type in that sense. Because the moment we have conception, that one cell has a sinful nature within the spiritual DNA of every human being. So we're born sinners and we transgress. All you do is add time and sinners sin. Sinners rebel. We have the sin nature and we prove it by our sin. In our heart, our thoughts, our actions, our words, where we go, what we touch, what we do. But Jesus, the perfect sinless life, and with his blood, not, verse 12, not of Hebrews chapter 9, not with the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered. So again, you know, we're still contrasting Aaron, but Aaron really is a type. Because what Aaron did was showing what Jesus would do, but Aaron's got the bull and his blood for his family. But Jesus doesn't need to bring a sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. And so we need to understand that, like when the devil wants to move us from a place of confidence in the Lord and assurance of faith in the Lord, He'd like to get us on the blood of bulls and goats. We need to stay on the blood of Christ. Because we're told here that that blood was once for his own blood, once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Those priests going every year on Yom Kippur to do the same thing showed that it wasn't complete. When Christ was on the cross, what did he say? It is finished. That declaration is, is the triumphant declaration of the atonement, of the fulfilling of these things, once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Then later on in chapter 9 of Hebrews, it says this in verse 24. For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God, that would be the Father, for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another, He would then have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the age, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. So we're reminded in Hebrews explaining what we're read what we've read here in Leviticus 16 that Jesus came and fulfills all this type and he fulfills it perfectly completely and that in so doing it's once for all it's never going to happen again that's why it's the everlasting covenant it's the new and everlasting covenant to bear the sins of many because not all people believe in him right like you can't like the the atonement's available for all but if you don't come it's it's not a universal salvation it's a it's a self-determined choice of faith or unbelief by which we stand or fall. The Lamb's book of life for the books are open. It's one or the other. But it says, for those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time. I think we're eagerly waiting for him. Don't you agree? Wouldn't you say we're eagerly awaiting for him? Pastor Chuck Smith at Calvary Christian Macy always say, when talking about eschatology or end time events, he goes, he would say he wasn't looking for the Antichrist. He was looking for the return of Christ. And that's what we're eagerly awaiting the return of Christ. It's amazing to me how many times it's said that Jesus is going to come again to establish his kingdom. 
And the devil, again, would like to have us not. You know, I don't talk about the devil much, right? But we're, we're, there's like a war room right now. We're at war, obviously, in more ways than one right now. And he wants to move us from the confidence that the end game is Christ comes and establishes the kingdom. Christ comes for his church. Christ comes and splits the Mount of Olives. Christ comes and makes that which is dead alive. Christ comes and rules for a thousand years. That's the end game. Christ comes and throws Satan in the lake of fire. That's the end game. And so as unsettling as things look, as we see the removal of law and order, Christ will come. He's going to come. His trumpet's going to sound, and his kingdom is a kingdom of perfect righteousness. And as the waters cover the sea, so his righteousness will cover the earth when he reigns, we're told, in more than one spot. He's going to come. So our confidence of the type of what Aaron is going in there and what he did, but Christ going in superior and fulfilling that type and the work that Jesus did beyond Aaron, because Aaron went home at the end of the day. He took a bath and went home. And it's put, the, put it on the calendar for next year. Right? You walk by his cattle field. Which cows, the, the cattle on a thousand, a thousand hills, which one's the one that's going to be my offering next year? Christ died once for all and rose from the grave and there's no more need for cattle. So now it's not about what he's going to do to save us. It's about what he's going to do to come back and receive us and establish his kingdom. And Christ loves his church. Honestly, I feel really sorry for all these people that keep coming against the church and attacking his people. We're his bride and he loves his bride. So all these blasphemous people, all these angry people, all these godless, atheistic, agnostic secular, humanist, Marxist, communist people that attack his church. It's really sad because unless they get struck down like Saul on the road to Damascus, they get struck down in eternity because we're told we can bow the knee to Christ in time, space, and matter and confess him as Lord and serve him, but we're told that everyone bows the knee in eternity that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we can bow the knee by choice in time and be saved and serve him, or we're going to bow the knee in eternity and be cast out from his presence. And to outer darkness and missing everything we're created for. And going through Ecclesiastes right now in my own life, it's amazing how much truth Solomon hits on, where it's just like, you know, someone saves the city and no one even remembers him a generation later. Like, this is just our timeline. Others came before us. If the Lord tarries, others come after us. Good things happen to the good and the evil. Bad things happen to the good and evil, and yet we all, we all go our way. But a living dog is better than a dead lion because a living dog still has life. And so we still have life, and God's not done with us. The dead lion's dead, and no one can come back because we just read it's appointed to men to die once and then the judgment. No one's coming back who floundered and failed their life or fought the Lord in blasphemy and unbelief. But the, dead dog, excuse me, the living dog still has life. And there's still opportunity for a living dog as opposed to a dead lion. All the glory of dead lions, where are they now? It's the living dog that has life. It still has opportunity to fulfill the things of the Lord. And that's who we want to be. That's a funny thing, this journey, isn't it? Who would ever thought we'd see a year like this? And really, who can even begin to guess where it's going to go? And Solomon even said, who can tell a man what, what's going to happen tomorrow, and what, let alone around the corner or after they're gone? Do any of you ever think, especially you older people, do you ever think what's going to happen when you're gone? Like sometimes you just meditate and go like, I wonder what it's going to be like when Zippy's 40. 
Do you ever think like that? I mean, I do. I actually do. Because it's shaping how I'm acting and reacting right now to the current world circumstances. For what I can do in prayer or whatever God calls me to do to try and set things up for them. But I, I can't protect my grandchildren 40 years from now, and neither can you. Right? But we are told a righteous man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. And the greatest thing we can leave our children's children is faith. And a legacy of a life sold out, filled with courage and conviction and character. Christ will offer, he was offered once to bear our sins, and those who eagerly wait for him, he's coming again a second time for salvation. So again, from this Hebrews text, chapter 9, his blood, once for all, his own blood, once for all, sinless blood, obtaining eternal redemption, and he's coming for salvation. Now, the last thing we see is the full forgiveness, and this is important, the full forgiveness. Because they would be forgiven, and it was like, a bath or something. They'd be forgiven like a wound is cleaned, but the wound was never healed. Because a year later, they're back at square one and what Aaron wasn't doing wasn't sufficient to really remove spiritually the fullness of the weight of sin. And so we see in verse 10 with the scapegoat, this scapegoat, as I mentioned earlier, really represents the full forgiveness that Jesus Christ gives us when we turn from our sins and put our faith and trust in him as Lord and Savior. And it's a forgiveness that really encompasses past, present, and future because his work on the cross is a full work. We don't crucify him again. He's crucified once. And his sacrifice is sufficient for full forgiveness. Full forgiveness according to grace and according to God's mercy and character. And the scapegoat really is a picture of what would happen once Christ died on the cross. The scapegoat is interesting because, you know, it's an American term, right? Someone's got to take the fall, right? They're the scapegoat. Someone messed up the project at work, and someone's going to get fired. It's like, you know, when they had the Super Bowls. Who even knows if we ever have another Super Bowl? But the Super Bowl commercials and the really good commercials, everyone's happy. The marketing firm, the whole year they work on it, these come with these brilliant ideas. And, you know, the people rate their favorite commercials. And if you crushed it, you crushed it. But there's always dogs, right? There's always really bad Super Bowl commercials. You just go like, oh, man, they all got fired. Do you ever think that? Well, you know, because I have a background in marketing. You see a really bad Super Bowl commercial, go like, they all got fired. The whole marketing firm, everybody. And then ultimately, collectively, no, people don't usually like to take the blame together. So it's someone's fault who made the final decision. That's the scapegoat. The worst Super Bowl commercial, Monday morning, someone's got to get fired. Right? Or national treasure, someone's going to jail. Someone's going to take the fall. Someone's got to take the fall. It's the American way. You're the scapegoat. You're fired. Jesus is our scapegoat's blood on the altar. But Jesus is the scapegoat. What he did as the one scapegoat is fulfilled in the second scapegoat. And think about this when they actually did this. When they took the scapegoat, like maybe during the time of Hezekiah or Josiah where there's revival, can you imagine the guys got the scapegoat? Like, dude, there goes the goat. Man, I always knew that goat had a destiny. Lucky goat, it's all or nothing, right? You're cast a lot, 50-50. Either you're like, or you're free, right? You know, it's like, I tell you, Abram, that's the luckiest goat I ever knew. I'll tell you a story about that goat. And there he goes off in the Judean wilderness. There he goes. And as he went through the villages, people were like going like, like, you know, goodbye, adios, ciao. 
It's fucking noche. You know, it's like, there you go. Like, you just want to see you again. That goat was a visual for centuries for God's people in a shadow of things to come, what he would do when his son died on the cross with their sins. No one was supposed to go look for that goat. Now, some people, like, we just, we do that. Like, they're forgiven, and then the devil's like, I think the goat you're looking for is, it's right here. It's right here. You know that goat? Here he is. Look, the lucky goat. He's back at your front door. It's like, no, I don't want to see that goat ever again. Like, Jesus, (laughs) Jesus, take the goat. And the devil's happy to find that goat. He knows exactly where that goat is. People that know you, think they know you, and want to keep you in bondage or take you backwards. Hey, you lose this, buddy? Hey, buddy, you lose this? Hey. This is your goat? Is this your goat? Did you lose your goat? Oh, come on. Come touch the goat. This is your goat, right? This is your goat? No, not my goat. That's a scapegoat. No, I think it's your goat. Look, look what they confessed over it. Isn't, aren't those your sins confessed over that goat? No, I've never seen that goat before in my life. I don't want to see that goat, right? This is the, God gives us, I'm not, again, I'm not going online trying to find cute stories about the gospel. This is what God gives us in his word to understand what Jesus did on the cross. It is finished. It's over. So that's why the psalmist years later, centuries later, would say, so far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. That, to me, I get the visual of the scapegoat going away when I, when I hear that psalm. And then we're told in the New Testament, of course, that there in 1 John, in the latter part of his life, he's saying, look, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and from our sins. Like, we need to come and we, we need to confess our sins. We need to be aware of our sins. Jesus said, forgive us our debts this day as we forget our debtors. But it's not like we're trying to re-find the power by which we are forgiven. The power was accomplished on the cross of our forgiveness. And it's meant to totally cleanse us and deliver us as we confess our sins and seek to go forward. If you look at the New Testament church in the book of Acts, one of the, the, the central core message of their, the gospel message, starting with the day of Pentecost and then the preaching you see, it's always that we can be forgiven of our sins. And the world needs to know they can be forgiven of their sins. Truly forgiven, because the guilt and weight of sin is the cause of so many of society's problems. In fact, probably most, if not all of them, is a suppressed guilt and conviction and condemnation for sin. And whom the Son sets free is free indeed, because he paid the price for the sins, and he forgives the sins. And so it's just like when Peter's preaching, like, that, you know, for remission of sins, that sins can be forgiven. In chapter 3, when the, the lame man was healed, that times of refreshing can come through repentance, and you can be forgiven. The message of the early church was not just that Jesus was the Son of God, but through his death, burial, and resurrection, there was cleansing and forgiveness for sins. And and that had a far-reaching impact, that message, as they went out into the Roman Greek world, and it transformed people. And that's what it's doing today. Jesus forgives. And when he says on the cross it is finished, he means it. We're not in a religious system by which we need to do penance and all these acts of charity or something that somehow gets us back in a good grace. We need to be on our knees, we need to ask forgiveness, and we need to go forward. And don't go chasing the scapegoat. Jesus didn't die on the cross, so you can find the scapegoat or have someone knock on your door and give it back to you. Let it go, and we go forward. That's our application tonight.
that we have the ultimate high priest in Jesus Christ. And we have the ultimate forgiveness through his blood. We have the ultimate access, the ultimate cleansing, and it's all there for us. We should be and actually are the most joyful people on earth because we're redeemed. And let the redeemed of the Lord say, praise the Lord. Amen.